Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. In his theses on Feuerbach, Marx famously claimed that philosophers had previously only attempted to interpret the world. The point, however, was to change it. In the 20th century, no philosopher had as great an effect on the world than Marx, with various intellectuals and political movements across the world claiming various parts of his thought and using them to develop and change their own parts of the world. One of these movements, Socialist Lebanon, took root in the 1960s, and much Arab political thought has developed in its shadow ever since. Composed of a variety of activists and intellectuals, their attempts to adapt and develop Marxist thought for their own particular context remains important both for understanding Middle East history as well as current political possibilities for the Arab world today. This is the set of animating ideas that drive my guest today, Fadi A. Bardawil, who is here to discuss his new book, Revolution and Disenchantment, Arab Marxism and the Binds of Emancipation from Duke University Press in 2020. Bardawil received his PhD from Columbia University and is an assistant professor of Asian and Middle East Studies at Duke University. So Fadi Bardawil, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. So we always like to have our guests introduce themselves a bit, tell us a bit about themselves. So could you maybe tell us a bit about what your main areas of research tend to be? Sure. Uh, I'm trained uh, at the graduate level as a cultural anthropologist. So that's what I did my PhD training in uh, with two subfields, mostly. One is uh, political anthropology and the second is uh, postcolonial theory. So my work really uh, is at the intersection of three fields, uh, political anthropology, contemporary Arab thought, and uh, critical and postcolonial theory. And that book that, you know, we're going to talk about now tries to sort of uh, think through how can you uh, look at critical theory through an anthropological lens and historically. Wonderful. So to kick things off, you write in the foreword that this book was partly an attempt to make sense of political and intellectual trends, first developed in response to the 9-11 attacks and then later to the Arab uprisings in 2011. Can you explain a bit about the dynamics you saw and how your book came to be a sort of response to them? Uh, Sure. I mean, I was a graduate student in the early 2000s, right after 9-11, and during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And uh, back then, there was a lot of uh, what the anthropologist and political scientist Mahmoud Mamdani calls culture talk, which is basically a lot of culturalist explanations that seek to understand what happens politically in the Arab world or even basically violent acts in terms of rooting them in a cultural matrix. So, you know, the media, pundits, Some scholars would say that there is uh, something about the culture of Arab societies or something about the culture inherent in the Muslim religion that leads people to behave in a particular way. And 
I sort of uh, came of age as a graduate student and in an atmosphere that was very critical of this culture talk that sought to basically emphasize that political action and practice cannot be looked at ahistorically by rooting it in supposedly an unchanging culturalist matrix. So if you read the book, whether it's a holy book or another book, it's not going to inform you on what is happening in the 20th or 21st uh, century without trying to understand the historical dynamics. So that book started the idea, uh, sort of like animating that book, was happened in that context where I was schooled in what, you know, was a post-colonial critique of the culture, that sort of critique of basically uh, culturalism. In the wake of the Arab uprisings in, in 2011, uh, something, something very different happened. We had basically uh, tremendous mass movements of people across the Arab world who were demanding emancipation from the authoritarian regimes. And what was peculiar about these movements is that unlike other mass movements of the 20th century that had, if you want, the West at the, at the heart of their movements, such as the anti-colonial nationalist movements in the 20th century, or uh, leftist movements that sought to basically uh, emancipate the people from economic dependence to, you know, the metropoles of the world, and uh, basically... Uh, so seeking as well political independence as and as well as a sort of like wave of you know uh islamist militancy you can think of uh the iranian revolution or khomeini that also had a, an agenda of cultural decolonization so to basically summarize the the nationalists the marxists and the islamists so to speak had their work in a way driven by an agenda that still had the West, whether you think of the West as uh, the political colonizer or you, I mean, in the, or you think of a certain dependency to Western economies or a cultural dependency at the heart of their, of their movements, that two, 2011 movements were different in, in, that, in that sense. So there was the first moment I started to think about that book the question of countering, if you want, uh, sort of Western culturalist talk about religion, about Arab societies, was very central. But then, with 2.11, there's something else appeared on the scene, which is a novel political actor. You see, because if you want to think about the conundrum of 2003, what you had is, you know, so, I mean, and I write about this a bit in the book, a lot of sort of Arab intellectuals and militants were caught between the hammer of basically a tyrant, such as a dictator, such as Saddam Hussein, who's basically calling for national sovereignty. And on the other hand, you had a potential to get rid of the tyrant that came at the expense of a foreign military occupation, which is the U.S. occupation. So there was no place in which you could have, so to speak, a grassroots autonomous political practice coming from below to change things. You were basically stuck between a hammer and an anvil, between a tyrant who's basically talking about sovereignty and a foreign occupier who's talking about democracy, so to speak.
Yeah, wonderful. So in the book's introduction, you lay out some of the difficulties as well as the importance in writing a book like this, pointing to a dynamic you call the metropolitan unconscious, which involves dynamics of various points of emphasis and neglect. Can you unpack these and how your book will seek to remedy some of the issues that emerge from them? Sure. Thank you. I mean, that's a great question. And it actually follows, I mean, right, right on what I've been talking about. So basically what I mean by the metropolitan unconscious is that a lot of basically our critical theories in the Euro-American academy still uh, take the metropole, by which I mean uh, the, the West, at the heart of, of basically uh, their attachments. So you're either you know, sort of doing this sort of civilizational comparison saying that, you know, the West is better, so to speak, or in criticizing it, you're always in a position of speaking back to the West. So whether you are working, you know, on trying to understand something that's happening uh, on the ground in Egypt or in Lebanon, the critical tools that that you are working with as well as the inter- as well as the intervention that you uh, you you're seeking is always sort of sometimes overdetermined by the question of the west so let me give you an example uh, for example if you're working on, on on islam and you sort of you're trying to think through the different varieties of how sort of people experience uh, their their religion. If you are deploying instance, you know, sort of constantly a binary of let's say uh, secular liberal Muslims versus non secular liberal Muslims, this is part of a distinction where basically what it takes to be central is whether the people you are working with are secular and liberal. Or not. So, in a way, the West is sort of in in the guise of liberal secularism is smuggled back in into our critical theories. Now, this binary may not, for example, make sense to the people on the ground that you are that we are basically working with and trying to understand and give an account of their lives and practices. Yet, these binaries that basically seek to try and think in terms of like West, non-West, liberal non-liberal, secular, non-secular, are part of this basically big contraption that I call the metropolitan unconscious that sort of, in a way, overdetermines a lot of what we can see or what we cannot uh, see when we basically study study certain, certain societies, practices, uh, uh, and, and discourses. So... Uh, I I lean on uh, the distinguished uh, scholar of uh, of Japan, Harry Haratunian, who in a piece talks about the missing object of area studies, to sort of try and think about how can we do area studies in my case Middle East studies, without having always to basically be either speaking for or speaking back at at the West. And in doing so, in a way, literally having certain uh, things escape our our gaze and our lenses, certain forms of difference, for example, or certain logics of power that we cannot sort of uh, diagnose, we cannot sort of critically see, because already our sort of critical tools are formatted by basically the sort of setting that we are in. And, and since we are working in, in, in the U.S. Academy and the, and, and the U.S. as 
basically a nation state and as an empire has very heavy geopolitical stakes in the Middle East, that makes that makes it sort of like, you know, that makes the sort of the tension between the sort of the, the academic and the political sort of like also very vivid. Yeah, so that sets up kind of some of the theoretical background. To mm-hmm. dive into the historical element, the story you want to tell has a key starting point, uh, September 1, 1920, with the Declaration of Greater Lebanon. This founding was riddled with certain contradictory dynamics, not helped by French influence. So can you unpack some of the key themes in this original founding that need to be borne in mind and how they would play out over the next couple decades? Yeah, right. So Lebanon, you know, is going to be 100 years old uh, next September, as you as you just mentioned. It was sort of literally founded in on September 1st, 1920 by uh, a French general. So basically, Lebanon was part of the Ottoman Empire for uh, the area that came to be, to be more precise historically, the area that came to be Lebanon was part of the Ottoman Empire. And after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I, uh, Lebanon and Syria were put under the French mandate. And from 1920, when it was founded until 1943, Lebanon was under French control. 1943 is when uh, Lebanon got its independence from the from the French in the middle of World War II, and it has been uh, sort of independent since then. Now the the tensions that I that I talk about really, I mean, I mean, partly what you have is the you know the moment of carving out the modern Arab world in the wake of the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire by uh, by the old imperial powers, by, by basically Great Britain and France. Uh, Palestine, Iraq were under basically a British mandate. Lebanon and Syria were under the French mandate. That's one of them. But the other one that I had in mind is how... Uh, I mean, and that's something that in Mount Lebanon uh, precedes the foundation of Lebanon from the 19th century, is how basically the the Lebanese constitution had a sort of like an internal tension between the citizen, the Lebanese citizen that's supposed to be abstract and, and general, yet at the same time, it was a sectarian, I mean, the Lebanon's basically founding was sort of put sectarianism by which i mean the differ- the the sort of political the political system itself was geared that it depends on what religious sect you what position you can basically occupy politically in the state depends on the basically religious sect that you are born into so for example the lebanese president has to always uh, be a Maronite Christian, the prime minister, Sunni Muslim, the speaker of the house, uh, Shia Muslim, and so on and so on. So in a way, it sort of turned these uh, religious attachments and affiliations into uh, political categories that are in tension with the category of the citizen. Because if you are a citizen, any citizen is supposed to be interchangeable with any other citizen. So any citizen 
could have he or she could have the right to become a president yet in Lebanon no you know if you are let's say a Muslim you cannot be president you can only be depending if you're a Sunni or Shia a prime minister or speaker of the house and so that's the tension that in a way riddled the riddled the country and the republic since its founding nearly a hundred years ago that made basically politics mesh with basically the clientelistic networks, uh, you know, infranational attachment to uh, family, region, and sect. And also sometimes, and I will talk more about this later on, uh, sort of supranational attachments. So how is it that, what I mean by infra and supranational is basically, how is it that you could have a form of belonging that is that is less than the citizen, but could have echoes and resonances with uh, basically a f- an, with a force, for example, or an imaginary which is uh, beyond the national. So, a very very simple example that's now very outdated. But for example, the sort of Christian Maronites who would sort of have had had a privileged relationship with France. Or, or or with the Vatican, because uh, for a number of centuries now, uh, you have a Maronite college in the, Vat- uh, in, in, in the Vatican in Rome. And so this is part of what I was trying to get at, that, that moment of founding and how that moment of founding, in a way, sort of inscribed the political within the sectarian. And that led to the different kind sorts of tensions and as we're going to see later on like civil wars that sort of were part of the system yeah that's some wonderful background so to zoom in and turn to the figures you want to focus on for this book such as wada charara he and many of his intellectual and political comrades grew up in the 1940s and 50s times of conflict and crisis for their region Can you give us a sense of the world they grew up in and how it would play a formative role in their later political development? Right. I mean, that's that's a wonderful question, you know, because uh, part of the story I tell in this book is a story of a generation. And that generation came to be called the 1960s generation. So they were mostly born between the late 30s and the late 40s. So by the time we were in the 60s, they were young men and women. And... So that what happened in these two decades of their sort of childhood, teenage years and early adulthood years is actually uh, fascinating because it was packed with political events. And unlike the sort of easy sort of historiographical marker that we use sometimes, which is like pre-World War II, post-World War II, if you look at the history of this generation from the perspective of Lebanese and Arab uh, politics, you have different different historical markers that are much more refined than thinking of the world before the Second World War and the world after the Second World War. So I'll give you a few of them. Um, 1948, which is the Palestinian Nakba, which is the Palestinian catastrophe, the date of the founding of, based of the State of Israel and the dispossession of the Palestinians and their becoming a diaspora is a key event. So particularly because of the sort of geographical contiguity between uh, Lebanon and northern Palestine. So these uh, young men and women who, let's say, were born in 1940, you know, they were seven, eight-year-old kids when they saw refugees literally, like, flocking onto their streets. 
So, so their their if you want relationship to the Arab-Israeli conflict is not a relationship that's an ideological one, which is distant, but it's something that they've experienced literally, at, starting with them being, you know, children. Of course, they were born as well around to go back a few years in time. They were born around the time Lebanon gained its independence from France in 1943. So they are also the first independence uh, generation, if you, if you, you know, so to speak. In 1956, let's say they were like, you know, 14 years old, 15 years old. They were like teenagers. This is the time when uh, the Egyptian president, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, basically nationalized the Suez Canal, which and then there was the Suez War in its wake. So they were following very closely what was happening in Egypt. The free officers in Egypt uh, overthrew the monarchy in 1952. So as you see, these are really, really, you know, key moments that were going to shape the sort of history of the modern Middle East. So 1948, 1952, 1956, uh, 1961 is the rupture of the union between Syria and Egypt that happened uh, a couple of years earlier. This was a huge blow for the Arab nationalist, pan-Arab nationalist uh, project because a lot of uh, you know a lot of people had hopes that once colonial powers once they will be liberated from colonial powers uh the different arab countries are going to unite because the sort of fragmentation of the arab world uh, is an outcome of uh, colonial division now the rupture of the union in 1961 dealt a big blow to to these basically Arab nationalists and the generation of militants I work with were uh, experienced this basically as a personal setback and was a big big slap in the face because then they they started asking themselves questions such as you know if a political sort of union between Egypt and Syria cannot last more than a couple of years. And that's, you know, a few years after, after all these anti-colonial forces sort of um, in Egypt come into power, then what does this tell us about Arab societies? What does this tell us about the internal contradictions that we overlooked when we thought that basically uh, it just we just need to get rid of the colonizers for Arab unity to happen automatically. So that's sort of like that unmediated automatic association of freedom and unity in the wake of uh, basically colonialism was was put into questions. So to summarize, and and I would say. Uh, 40s and 50s, so 43, Lebanese independence, 48, the Palestinian catastrophe, 1956, the nationalization of the Suez Canal and the Suez War, 1961, the rupture of the union between uh, Syria and Lebanon. By that time, they were maybe 18 years old, old 19 years old, so they were in college. They were like 19, 18, you know, 20, depending on when they were born. Yeah, wonderful. They certainly grew up in some very 
interesting times. Uh, turning to 1964, the organization Socialist Lebanon was founded. So before digging into their own theoretical and political stances, uh, can you kind of develop a bit more of this context and give us a sense of how they saw themselves uh, or, or the context they understood themselves to be in and how they were trying to relate to that context or how they understood themselves in a very particular, as being in a very particular situation? Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, that, that's, that's a great question. So uh, first of all, this, this organization was a very, very small organization. I mean, and it was sort of over, overpopulated by militant intellectuals, uh, a number of whom, a number of them were end up basically becoming... Uh, university professors or uh, editors or famous poets, novelists, etc. So uh, what what we have is basically a, a formation of a formation of a, an underground Marxist organization called Socialist uh, Lebanon in in the wake of what I was just telling you in the wake of the sort of first setback to the. Arab nationalist project and a lot of uh, the key figures that were that came to found socialist Lebanon had had experiences in Arab nationalist uh, political parties earlier, uh, such as the Arab nationalist movement or or or, or the Ba'ath. So in a way, uh, one vein nourishing the founding of this leftist uh, organization was, uh, so to speak. Uh, as an, a leftist critique to the pan-Arab Arab nationalist project after, after, after 1961. And the way, uh, the way one, of, one of the uh, sort of main figures of socialist Lebanon, who's a, now a distinguished historian in Lebanon, uh, emeritus uh, professor of history at the Lebanese University, Ahmad Baydoum, uh, described it to me is by saying that in the wake of 1961, the question of Marxist theory became important because it enabled them to, to try and think the internal contradictions internal to Arab societies. So you see, you move, if you want to put it very, very simply, that the, the, their lens is moving from a lens which is mostly a nationalist lens that's thinking about the contradiction between the colonizer and the colonized to a class-based lens, which is trying to think about the social structure of these societies, about what 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 is that form, what is basically what classes do the regimes in power in Syria and Egypt belong to? Uh, how how are the different bourgeois components, upper classes of the Arab world relating to politics vis-a-vis middle classes, vis-a-vis the working classes? So so in a way you have you have a movement. That is that is taking these intellectuals towards towards Marx because Marx is enabling them not only to sort of uh, found a revolutionary movement, but is also giving them very sophisticated diagnostic tools that enable them to think the question of imperialism externally, but also the question of uh, class contradictions internally as well. So this is, if you want. One of the one of the one of the contexts and one of the main contexts that's basically uh, happening. Another important 
basic aspect of socialist Lebanon is unlike the uh, the Lebanese Communist Party uh, that was founded in 1924, so it was exactly 40 years older than them. Uh, this, these young men and women who were coming from, you know, Arab nationalist experiences, were not uh, were not affiliated with or did not revolve in the Soviet orbit. So. They were Marxist, yes, but they were not in a way attached to or they or pro-Soviet. So they came to be called later on uh, as the new left, which is that left that came out of out of Arab nationalism. So that was one way in which you can understand uh, a local, regional, international context. And they were also very much sort of in very much imbued with the spirit of the age which is uh, the Algerian struggle for independence against French colonization in Algeria, uh, the Chinese revolution, the Cuban revolution, and basically the Vietnamese revolution later on. So in a way, there was this, they were part, you you can think of, if you want to think about them internationally, so I talked about them a bit, uh, locally, then regionally, internationally, they were part of this sort of you know coming together of what we what will be called later on third worldism, so to speak. So they were unlike the Liban- unlike the Lebanese Communist Party that you know came into being uh, seven years after the Bolshevik Revolution. These this this basically uh, this party had a very different sort of trajectory in terms of the experiences of uh, of its members, but also the regional and international sort of uh, conjuncture that basically uh, was happening around that time. Wonderful. So to kind of develop some of the things you've already been alluding to, Turning to a specific example of the group's output, in May 1969, they published a rather detailed essay on the Communist Manifesto, designed as a sort of public introduction to some fundamentals of Marxist theory, as well as countering the misunderstandings made popular by Stalinism. One of the key themes that comes up in the essay is that of translating Marxism into their situation, both literally and figuratively. So can you unpack the difficulties the group was wrestling with at the time regarding making Marxism relevant to their own situation while also remaining connected to other instances of emancipatory struggle in other parts of the world? Yeah, thank you. That's actually fascinating. And you're right. It's right. It's basically, it's a very, very smooth transition from the previous question because uh, what they were interested in is something called the Arabization of Marxism, which was something that was in touch with what uh, uh, Mao Zedong called, I mean, the sort of in, in the Maoist sort of like basically atmosphere in China was called the Chinification of Marxism, which is in a way how do you translate Marxist concepts into the political reality that you would like to to work in? Of course, this was a big kind of intellectual and political project at that time. You can think of uh, anti-colonial thinkers like Franz Fanon, who mentioned in The Wretched of the Earth that whenever you are in the in the in the colony, Marxist concepts have to, have, have to be stretched 
a bit. I, I, if I remember correctly, that's the you know that the, the word he uses to stretch them. So so the idea of I mean, they were very clear about it. They were they were producing this introduction to reading the Communist Manifesto, and they were saying basically, what how can we relate to a text that was written in the 19th century and did not mention basically, you know, what came to be known as the post-colonial world. And only, I mean, the only way it mentioned them is by calling them barbarian countries. So what, what, they're, what they're basically putting on the table is that if you, look, if you look at it in terms of time and if you look at it in terms of space, we are in a very different register than the context in which Marx wrote his oeuvre. We're not in the 19th century, we're not in Europe, and we do not have basically a fully developed industrial working class. So if you're thinking of, you know, let's say the British working class in the 19th century. So what can we learn? What can we do with what can we do with this basically body of work? And which is why, uh, you know, experiences such as uh, sort of the Chinese experiences were important for them because precisely they were trying to think with uh, other sort of experiences where Marx was translated into without the sort of uh, without having a textbook sociological basically definition of an industrial working class, you know, and and they were their theory basically was that there is no such i mean there is no such basically uh, there's no such thing as a as a marxist theory that can be applied it has to be translated and by translated they meant not only translated basically linguistically say let's say from you know english french italian if you're reading uh, Gramsci into Arabic, that's that's the first sort of step in terms of translation. But the second one, what they meant by translation is, uh, and I use a bit of a technical term there, which is basically a transfiguration, but what I really mean by it is adaptation, which is basically, I mean, if you're thinking of Marxist concepts like a toolkit, like how do you customize these tools to your own, basically, uh, to your own conjuncture? And they were very, 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 you know, sort of, reflexive in terms of thinking about how you'd have to always be rethinking these concepts as things are changing on the ground. So partly what, you know, what, what they were, what they were after were trying to find the sort of possibilities for, you know, founding an autonomous work, working class movement that is, very much aware of the specificities of the situation they are they, that they are they are working they are working with, and that the, the answer they give to that is basically as I as I told you through through the labor of translation as one that sort of puts into being uh, new concepts. So translation is not basically thought of as imitation or as a bad copy of the original. In fact, it's the opposite. Translation was thought of as a, as a creative, productive, uh, you know, creative, productive endeavor, say, 
and you know a few people have sort of like commented on how you know uh, Mao's peasants, for example, or uh, or Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, or Gramsci's Subaltern, are all basically concepts that are trying to sort of translate the sort of the proletariat and Marx into conditions where you do not have the conditions of industrial capitalism. And I will end by saying that uh, they were. Um, they were not historicist, i.e. they were not, they did not subscribe to, uh, and that's, you know, related to your question about sort of Stalin's sort of views of history. They did not subscribe to a stagist view of history, i.e. that, you know, you cannot sort of move towards a proletarian revolution if you do not pass through a bourgeois revolution before. So you have to, you know, you have to have you have to go through history step by step stage by stage because you know they they realized that in sort of you know in having this sort of historicist teleological view of history what you're sort of like foreclosing any possibility for sort of political practice in the present and that's usually a tool of power which is basically colonizers used to use such as you know when basically the colonizers would say we would like our independence now and they they say no no not not yet you're not ready yet you know it's the sort of paternalistic form of power that basically tells people that yeah they understand them but but not now so so in the form of revolutionary politics they literally emphasize that you know, translation is a generative, productive activity that can always try and basically make sense of the situation one is in so that a political practice is uh, hopefully, you know, made possible as opposed to let us wait until we have a proper bourgeois revolution. Then bef- then after that, and we, ask, we establish that, then we can start thinking about the possibilities of, uh, you know, working class emancipation, so to speak. So that, that, that logic of stages that always delays practice in the name of a supposed supposedly universal laws of history that they countered. One of the difficult problems that had to be navigated by socialist Lebanon, as well as other Arab intellectuals such as Edward Said and Sadiq Jalal Al-Azam, were the questions of modernization in the Middle East, where certain binary oppositions, such as modernism versus conservatism or internal versus external factors, uh, when analyzing certain failures or successes, often dominated the discourse. Can you unpack the difficulties here and how various figures here tried to navigate these questions? Uh, right, that's a great question, and also takes us back to uh, to your first question. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you how. So, uh, so let me let me give our listeners uh, some context. So, Saad uh, Jalal uh, who was uh, trained as a philosopher at Yale University, uh, became who was born in the mid thirties, became in the wake of the defeat of the Arab armies against Israel in the June nineteen sixty seven war. Uh, you know, one of the sort of main kind of like public intellectuals uh, that were sort of writing about issues of the day. So if you want, he moved out of the ivory tower of working on Immanuel Kant, which is what uh, his PhD work was on. So he moved on from working on sort of Kant and philosophy to like thinking about the Arab-Israeli conflict, the Palestinian revolution, uh, the Iranian revolution later on, so to speak. 
So the reason I'm giving you this bit of context about uh, Saudi Israel Azam is that because in in the wake of the Arab army's defeat uh, in 1967, he wrote this uh, very polemical book that is uh, that's called Self Criticism After the Defeat, and that book really is a uh, in. in in a way, what what he what Lazim does in that book is he sort of like basically turns the critical gaze inwards, and he says we should not blame uh, basically our defeat against Israel by pinning it on external factors such as you know imperialism or the failure of the Soviet Union to help us, etc. But we need to turn the gaze inwards and to actually basically take stock of our own responsibility in our, in our defeat. And the hour here refers to basically the Arabs in general, not to a particular nation state. So there is an ethical impulse in what he does, which is basically the idea of saying we need to take responsibility for our actions. However, the book is uh, deeply problematic in terms of its conceptual architecture, because it rests again, and that's how it sort of, you know, we go back to the first question of culture talk. It rests again on a very, uh, on a very culturalist critique, you know, whereby, you know, for for Lazen, the problem is that Arab culture is backwards, basically. So he deploys all the binaries of modernization theory, such as, you know, Tradition versus modernity, religion versus science, superstition versus reason, backwardness versus progress. So he, in doing that, you know, he sort of like puts forth uh, sort of like conceptual characters, such as a character that he names the Arab personality, that he basically, you know, sort of thinks through as being the deficient personality that led to the defeat. So the problem, of course, you know, with, there are many problems with Lazim's account. One of them is, of course, it denies historical transformation. The other is sort of, it sort of looks at Arab culture as a, a, a monolithic one, you know, that it raises differences internal to it, whether class differences or regional differences, etc., or gender differences. So that there are many problems with it. Now, uh, someone like Edward Said, of course, in in uh, in his seminal work Orientalism in 1978, criticizes this kind of culturalist critique, this uh, and the kind of modernization sort of uh, theory that says that you know the way for the Arab world to go forward is to move from tradition to modernity, from religion to secularism, from superstition to reason, from backwardness to progress, etc. And for, for Said, you know, again, that, as I just mentioned, you know, the, the sort of, there is, there are many flaws with this culture talk that always sort of seeks to portray the Arab world and its culture as either lagging behind or inferior to uh, basically sort of sort of the West. Now, where, where socialist Lebanon come, I mean, and I think that's where one of their main interventions 
is in, in the 60s is that unlike Saudi Israel Azam, they do not get caught in these binaries of saying, oh, uh, are we modern or are we traditional? Uh, were we defeated because uh, there's something uh, wrong with us or were we defeated because uh, imperialism is too strong? So they, they move beyond these binaries and the way they read the defeat in a way and the way they, 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 they read this, uh, this time is through trying to do a critical diagnosis of uh, the logics of power of the regimes themselves and the class compositions of these societies. So in a way, they move away from positing an Arab character or an Arab culture that's monolithic, that's basically homogeneous, that doesn't have differentiation, and in the way that sort of Lazum talks about, to try and think through, in a way, the operations of the multiple operations of power in uh, basically the sort of post-colonial Arab world, particularly through trying to think about the class composition and the practices and the ideologies of the military regimes in power, particularly the Nasser regime in, in, in Egypt. So they evade this big talk that seems to be very seductive, and it's still seductive to a lot of, you know, sort of people today, you know, you can you can sort of reproduce this tradition modernity binary on on any other binary such as you know democratic non democratic etc. So they move away from these binaries that seek to always portray the Arab world as lagging behind a Western ideal. Oh, we're very democratic here. When are they going to catch up with us? You know, we're very enlightened here. When are they going to sort of catch up with us? To actually detect how power works internally to uh, in in these societies and and that's what i thought was essential to redeem in and for our present by looking at the archives they produced in the 60s of course we live in a very different world today so i'm not sort of arguing for a repli- you know to replicate the answers they gave to the questions they were trying to answer but they also give us they sort of give us a way in which to think about formulating a critical intellectual project and political project, which is not sort of either, you know, taking one side or the other of these binaries. In 1969, Wada Charara published a critique of Lebanese authority, arguing that its stifling organization was a product of French influence. He writes, quote, The sectarian formation, which was made the geographic and political basis of Lebanon, is able to stifle every form of political maturity that carries the masses to fuse with the Arab region's battle against imperialism. This is not only because it puts every political discord to the test of civil war, but because it stifles every disagreement by annulling its true political aspect, by making it subservient to the sectarian conflict that conceals and fragments the issues pertaining to power, end quote. So can you unpack his critique a bit here and how this concealing and fragmenting of political dissent works in his view? Right. It's a, it's a very dense sentence. I agree with you. So uh, let's work through it. So basically what he's trying to say, and this is, uh, this is a key text that was produced, you know, n- nearly five years, five years and a half before the Lebanese Civil War started in, in 1975. 
And it's part of a wider argument that is trying to basically take stock of the impact on the Lebanese left and its struggles of having the sort of Palestinian uh, resistance working from Lebanon and, and basically trying to think together how can, you know, how can there be an alliance between uh, the, basically the Lebanese left and the Palestinian resistance? So what, what they're trying to think through here is the, the question of how can you have a Lebanese political practice that ends that basically ends up not being fragmented onto the sort of sectarian Christian slash Muslim uh, division, and what and this is what he's calling the sectarian formation, and he's pinning it down as a product of French colonialism. So this is the first part of the sentence in a way. So the French, so to speak. I mean, he's going to have different iterations later on and he's going to change his mind. But at that point in 1969, as a militant, he's trying to say that, look, we have a system that basically does not enable any possibility of politics to take place without having that politics divide up into very particular interests of, you know, Christians interests versus Muslim interests. So... And that 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 way of canceling any any politics, which if you want, can be you know divided over ideological issues, over nationalist issues, over class issues, and that always overdetermines it by basically rendering that division back into sectarian divisions is the product of you know the sort of French French influence. So that's how it conceals true politics, because in a way, for him at that point, you know, he, he's thinking he's thinking about class-based politics. So that's it. The situation is very simple. How can you have a working class politics without ending basically up having the working class divided into Christian and Muslims? You see, so how do you move, how do you move the division into a division, for example, along the lens of classes and interests uh, rather than basically having that, having that division reproduce the sort of sectarian division of based on ethnic slash religious identities which are you know christian and and muslim so in you know that text what they're trying to think through is the fact that you know the the work that the Palestinian resistance is doing in Lebanon as a force that's coming from the outside is basically a work that is going to reveal how that system is work and how that system works. And it's going to work as a, you know, as one way through which you could sort of implode that system. I mean, the idea is a very basic idea that, you know, that system is rigged by the way it's, designed from the inside. So if you want to really shake it and sort of implode it, you need a force that comes from the outside that comes and destabilizes it. And that force for them in 1969 is the Palestinian resistance. 
that will allow, if you want, to basically show how that system conceals and fragments political positions by always, always bringing them back into, you know, Christian interests versus Muslim interests and basically cancels any possibility for a class-based politics. So that's uh, that's a key text that's basically, you know, that's, that's, that's a key text that later on, you know, will be rethought uh, after, after the beginning of the Civil War. Yeah, moving along, in the spring of 1973, Chirara wrote a text titled The Blue Pamphlet, which was an attempt to wrestle with certain splits and antagonisms that had been emerging in various leftist organizations. What were the primary questions being wrestled with at the time, and how did Chirara attempt to grapple with them in this text? Right, so uh, to give you just a bit of like a you know sort of a historical snapshot of where 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 we were at in 1973. Uh, 1973 is is after socialist Lebanon merges with uh, a much much larger and much more veteran political party called the Arab Na- Arab Nationalist Movement, and uh, Shara was instrumental in making uh, that fusion between these two this small group of militant intellectuals and this basically big party, bigger, much bigger party of basically Arab nationalists. So in 73, he basically uh, develops uh, an internal oppositional faction from within that new organization, which was called the Organization for Communist Action in Lebanon which was the result of that fusion of these two parties I just told you. And that opposition movement uh, basically issues its critiques of the party in a text which is a bit short of 100 pages, maybe like 1995, 96, so a long text that is the result of discussions with uh, many of the comrades and that Shara drafted, which came to be known as the Blue Pamphlet. And the main really questions that this text is trying to think through is questions that have, that a lot of generations of uh, Marxist militants have basically thought about, uh, and it's not peculiar at all to the Arab world, because they're big, big questions that basically militants, and particularly Marxist militants, uh, have uh, dealt with. And, and there are basically three main three main ideas that they're trying to think through. One is the question of the organization. So, by which I mean simply the political party. Is is the political party uh, the vector of emancipation? Or, uh, and when does this political party that's supposed to be the collective body that's sort of like driving, you know, people towards their own emancipation, when does it turn on itself, so to speak, and moves from being an agency of emancipation to becoming an organization of power? Uh, So, and it's a question that, you know, many militants, particularly, you know, you can think of militants in the U.S., lately in the wake of Occupy Wall Street, etc., the question of democracy within the organization, the question of hierarchy. So, 
Can you organize uh, without authoritarianism? Can you organize without hierarchy? Can you, uh, can you organize uh, democratically? Uh, or any form of organization is going to be vertical and therefore is going to basically uh, be repressive in one way or another or exclude people. Uh, so this is one of the big headlines that, that, they're, that you know, they're trying to, to think through. And, and they issued this, a critique of uh, a critique of the organization, which is not very far from uh, a critique that Leon Trotsky uh, sort of put forth in 1904, which is uh, called substitutionism. You know, when basically, sort of uh, the in Trotsky's scheme, some some it goes something along the lines of like the central sort of committee substitutes itself for for the party, the political bureau substitutes itself for the central committee, and then the secretary general of the party substitutes. You know the whole the whole thing for himself. So you, it's it's like a game of Russian doll, dolls, so to speak. So so it's a critique of uh, hierarchy and authority inside the party. That's the first headline. Uh, the second headline, which uh, has a had had then a big uh, Maoist inflection for them, is basically what is the relationship. And it's also a huge question in the Marxist tradition. What is the relationship of intellectuals to the masses that they are working with as as comrades? And this is another uh, way of posing the question of the division between intellectual labor and manual labor. So uh, are intellectuals the vanguards that are supposed to, you know, know more and know better than the people and therefore, you know, be superior to them as the word vanguard sort of means they be ahead of them and then enlighten them or are they supposed to be uh, in a more Maoist vein uh, the sort of what the, the Swiss French uh, very famous movie director Jean-Luc Godard who was a Maoist in, in the 60s he used to call himself then uh, basically a receiver transmitter so so the intellectual is not a vanguard the intellectual basically just receives his or her knowledge from the people and then transmits it back to him so you move from being a vanguard to being a relay right so in a way that's the second point they were dealing with and it was a critique of the intellectuals in the party and how do they relate to basically uh you know the, the the masses that they are working with. The third point, which again is a very general one, is the question of what do you do with when you realize that the people you are working with, the working class people you are working with, are have multiple attachments. They are not only you know, they're not textbook workers. But basically, they are workers who have a sectarian attachment, regional attachment, maybe ethnic attachment, racial attachments, national attachments. So how do you how do you take stock of these different attachments in order to basically while putting forth a class-based politics? And and in that uh, in, the, in that text, they basically try to 
think about developing a way to work with people as they are, as opposed to basically say, oh, no, before we have, you know, a revolutionary politics, we need to have people who really sort of forego any attachment they have to their, you know, sects or regions or so to speak. So three headlines and three headlines that are really, uh, you know, the question of the organization, the question of intellectuals, and the question of like supposedly non-emancipatory attachments are questions that generations of Marxists have dealt with along, you know, in different places and in different times. So that's 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 what the blue pamphlet is about in a nutshell. In attempting to analyze the violence around him that developed through the 1970s, Chirara found certain limitations in his understanding, largely because a variety of Marxist concepts were insufficient for understanding how intertwined the different developments he was observing were. So can you give us a sense of this context and what Chirara's theoretical dissatisfaction was? Right. I mean, that that's in a way... One way to think about this again, I mean, and that's that's I'm happy you're sort of asking me this question right after the 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 previous one because basically we're we're now in the mid-70s, so a couple of years after the blue pamphlet is is published, and the Lebanese civil and regional wars uh start. And and Sharara was one of the first militants to uh, withdraw from political practice then. And also to theorize what I call, uh, in a way, the, the enmeshment of political practice then in the social fabric, in the sectarian, mostly social fabric. So what Shara was basically noticing is that even though the war had a, a, a severe, basically, political you know, sort of like divisions that are part of it and ideological ones between whether, you know, the right that was a Lebanese nationalist right that basically was uh, anti-Palestinian and the left that supported the basically Palestinian resistance's right to uh, resist Israel. So there were this basically geopolitical considerations that have to do with where do you align yourself in the Arab-Israeli conflict. There were also questions that had to do with state and revolution. There are also things that had to do with uh, sectarianism. The Lebanese left, you know, uh, wanted to abolish the sectarian system for a fully secular system. So there were many, many sort of, you know, ideological, political divisions dividing the, the warring parties. Yet what sort of Sharara sort of like noticed is that there was also something fundamental, which is what he called uh, the social dimension of the conflict. That that, that is that more so on the on the right side, that the majority of the right was uh, Christian, and a big chunk of of the leftist forces were were Muslim. So what you have, in a way, so to speak, I mean, to sort of simplify a bit, is the sectarian and the ideological are sort of collated together. And that's that led to basically, uh, you know, if you if you go back and look at the archives of how the Western press back then sort of covered that war in 1975, and they were at a loss. So what they did is they sort of sometimes collated the ideological and the sectarian together. So they would say something like the Muslim left and the Christian right, 
they would sort of put that together. And but Sharana's Sharana's theor- theorization was that basically, if you have these political div- divisions that are articulated on, enmeshed in really in basically these sort of regional sectarian formations, then what form does basically violence take? And and how and could you basically and what form does the war and the struggle take? And one of the, you know one of the sort of consequences of this enmeshment of the political and the social, he basically says, is that for example, uh, sometimes acts of killing are not purely for utilitarian purposes, but the violence is also a uh, violence that is symbolic. So so there is uh, when you know when massacres are happening, sometimes you know he would I mean he would sort of go through detailing some gruesome details like uh, a body that is stabbed multiple times. So obviously the, the multiple stabbing is not to make sure that basically that person that is stabbed is actually killed, but also to basically, it's sort of like a, a symbolic act of through that body trying to get to the sect or the community that that fighter belonged to through the kind of defacement that these these basically defacement practices that 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 would take place, or <clears throat> he would notice, for example, that there is very very little attempt at, or there is very very little success in one party trying to win over to its side people from the other party. So, and that's one of the outcomes of having the political enmeshed in the social, so to speak. And in that moment, you know, he tries. He's sort of like bit by bit moving away from his old vocabulary of like Marxist concepts as he realizes basically the sectarian violence that is around him and the forms that the fighting is taking in Lebanon in the first two, three years of the war. Yeah, jumping right off of that transition, to address the limitations, Chirara turned to a somewhat surprising source, the 14th century scholar Ibn Khaldun. What was Chirara finding in Khaldun's work that he thought might supplement or help reorganize his Marxist analysis? Right, thank you. That's a great, great question. Uh, it is very, very, you're, you're absolutely right. It's very unsurprising, and you could sort of like, I mean, be startled by someone who has basically spent, you know, the last 10, 15 years reading uh, Marxist thinkers like uh, the French Ria Tussert or the Italian, uh, you know, Gramsci ends up basically moving back six centuries in time and reworking concepts from Ibn Khaldun. But basically, the move to Ibn Khaldun is a move to detect uh the modes power take when hegemony is very little. And let me, I mean, let me sort of unpack a bit what I mean. So he's, he's still thinking through his uh, Gramscian Marxist lenses. And he's trying to, when he's sort of show, seeing these sectarian fights and this sectarian violence, he's noticing that Gramsci's concept of hegemony, which is, you know, a concept that sort of Gramsci developed to sort of like understand how is it that sort of power works not only through coercion, but through uh, consent and developing basically a horizon of things we take for granted. And and he realized that the divisions internal to Lebanese society 
where basically there is no consensus on what does it mean to be a Lebanese. There is no consensus on national identity. There is no consensus on any of these things. Uh, power as, you know, a, a product of sort of unified criteria that people as, as, as you know, subscribe to and consent to was absent. And Ibn Khaldun has this concept of subjugation, which is the idea that it's it's the it's the sort of concept that Sharia takes to counter it to hegemony, which is basically when when power does not work through consent, basically. Uh, power works through, uh, you know, direct coercion and, and subjugation, which is the fact that I don't, you know, I just, you know, I as, you know, as a warring party in this war, I just want to dominate you. I don't want to convince you of, you know, changing your sort of beliefs and your interiority and what you believe in. I mean, there's no process of conversion that's happening here in power. Like, I'm not trying to seduce you into my way of life or into my way of understanding beliefs. I do just need to basically subjugate you. And so he's, see, he's working, so Sharad at that point, as he's moving out of Marxist's universe, he's Taking, taking concepts from Ibn Khaldun, reworking them, and trying to understand how, how does power and violence work in, a, in basically a, in a war where basically sectarian and regional divisions are intertwined with political and ideological ones, and whereby the, the power to win people over to the other side, the, the, the desire to, you know, sort of win people by their consent through you know, converting them, which is a form of soft power, basically, is not there. So so one way to think of Ibn Khaldun is to try to understand power in the absence of soft power, like in the absence of like culture, production, conversion, politics, but really thinking about you control that seaport or you control that mountain hill. I want it, you know, I will subjugate you and I'll control it. I don't want to convert you. I don't want to, you know, I don't want you to sort of win you, win, win your heart and mind. It's basically the idea is you can keep your beliefs as long as I'm the boss. So it's a very different form of power. It's not a power that seeks to win you over, that seeks to, you know, do this whole soft power campaign. And that's what uh, Ibn Khaldun enables him to think through. In the final chapter of the book, you find Chirara continuing to develop his analysis of the Middle East and its relation to other parts of the world. Interestingly, this puts him on several parallel tracks with Edward Said's critique put forward in his Orientalism, although some key points of difference emerge here as well in their analysis. So can you unpack these points of contention that Chirara developed in contrast to Said? Right. I mean, the, 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 point, the point I make... Uh, the point I make in that in that last chapter, and uh, thank you, thanks, Stephen. That's a great question. The point I make in that great chapter is that, but by, by the time we are in the late seventies, uh, we witness a critique of the ideological categories of left and right from different corners. Uh, one of the, uh, one of those corners is the one I just mentioned, which is basically uh, Sharara by saying that, well, yes, of course, there's a difference between being on the left and and being on the right, but 
if if both left wing and right wing politics are not autonomous from the sectarian social fabric, then that's gonna lead to basically have certain consequences that even though they're not completely the same, they're gonna completely minimize that contrast between between left and right. And you know, and as as basically and turn and they're gonna basically have the upper hand, these sort of these sort of social divisions. So so what I what I say is that so to speak he he sidelines the ideological distinctions between ideological political distinctions between left and right to say that the social structure is more more important. Uh, Said does a very similar move by by sidelining the distinctions between uh, left and right by saying that it is uh, it is discourse that is more important than basically leftist right wing ideologies and politics. So in Orientalism, he has a critique of Karl Marx as, you know, as an Orientalist, as someone who succumbs to sort of like Orientalist fantasies about, about the East, and he criticizes Marx's writings on, on India. And, and what, what Said is basically doing in that book is saying that, I mean, you may think that basically Marx is the great emancipator and, you know, he's like a universal thinker, but when it comes to uh, thinking about the non-West, uh, Marx is reproducing tropes that, uh, you know, about the non-West as sort of, you know, being dormant or as about being backwards or so, so to speak, that people on the right as well reproduced. So in a way, the, 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 the assumptions you hold about the Orient, whether it's the Arab world, the Muslim world, you know, or or South Asia in that case, are... Said is saying in his critique of Orientalism, sort of more, more, you know, you could share them with basically someone who, who's on the right. And, and that makes you a very problematic thinker. So on the one hand, we have in the late 70s, people are saying there's something much more fundamental. Said and the post-colonials basically saying that there's something much more fundamental than the distinctions between left and right, and it's basically the kind of discursive assumptions through which people construct the worlds that they are talking about. And in, in doing that, people on the right and people on the left may share more than they think they do, which is structurally a very similar move to what Sharara does uh, when he says that, yes, you're right, there's a difference between left and right, but left and right share more than they think they do, which is basically how they how their politics is enmeshed in sort of the social structure. That said, so that's in a way where they're both sidelining these distinctions, but they're doing it from very different corners. The distinction, of course, is that Said is, you know, one of the sort of most eminent uh, sort of critics of empire. And and Shad basically moves away from the critique of empire in the wake of the Lebanese civil war to basically a critique of uh, communal belongings. So that's in a way where they that's where they diverge, so to speak. And and Shara basically, if you want, ends up at a very 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 different very different sort of place than than Said in thinking about you know. The, the, 
not only the method of critique, but also the object of critique and also how the understandings of power, and so to speak. So, but I do, I do think that that, that moment in the late 70s was a very productive and generative moment that came to sort of, you know, inaugurate what would later be in the 80s and the 90s, some kind of fork in critical agendas between uh, intellectuals, some of the intellectuals back at home, such as Sharara or Ahmad Baidun, who are thinking more about the problem of civil war and the problem of uh, commu- communal solidarities and subjugation, and diasporic Arab intellectuals such as Arab Sa- Edward Said, who, to quote the title of one of his eminent books, were still thinking the question of culture and imperialism. Wonderful. So in the epilogue, you write what was one of my favorite passages in the book about the disparity often discovered between intellectuals who often offer up intensely radical theories, which stand in stark contrast to much more moderate, watered-down political activity. Given that the title of your book is Revolution and Disenchantment, it seems fair to say you see this group of intellectuals and activists as in some way embodying this disparity. Although what I found interesting is the way you seem to be trying to help us wrestle more productively with this dilemma. So in closing, can you unpack what you're getting at here and how it might help us more productively engage with this revolutionary disenchantment? Right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephen. Uh... So you know what I'm trying what I'm trying to think through really is basically in the epilogue is the kind of main question which is at the heart of the book which we've been sort of trying to get at together for the past hour or so from different angles which is the question of what is the relationship of uh, theory to practice on the one hand and basically what are the different sort of like modes of operations of critical theories and sort of public intellectual interventions. So one of the examples I give, you know, uh, in that epilogue is the example of uh, someone that I sort of read a lot as a graduate student, the French um, social theorist and sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, who, you know, in the first part of his, uh, his, his career, he really developed a very, very interesting and sophisticated critique of uh, basically social reproduction about how, you know, institutions that are supposed to be democratic, such as the public school in a way, end up, or, you know, going to museums or what have you, end up reproducing sort of uh, the social inequalities that have, that are part of uh, society. And, you know, he developed concepts such as cultural capital, et cetera, to take stock of that. So, but when in the 90s, you know, the sort of French state, the, the sort of what he called the left hand of the French state, which was the hand that gives, the hand of the welfare state, the hand that gives you hospitals and schools and roads, and not the right hand of the state, which is the hand that hits you with cops and puts you in jail and taxes you. So when the neoliberal movement, you know, moment in the 90s uh, came into being and was dismantling the left hand of the state, the state that cares, basically, that left hand is left the hand that cares for you. When that hand, the caring hand of the state was dismantled, uh, Bourdieu moved out of his sort of, you know, sort of theoretical uh, sort of critique of the institutions of the welfare state to defend those same institutions. So what I'm trying to think 
through in that epilogue is really what how do you react to basically to what you think is a regression in the state of affairs of the world and a world that's growing more and more unjust and how does this how how does this sort of like relate to the sort of critical theories that you've produced before that so in a way the case of Bourdieu is very illuminating because it's not that the institutions of these welfare states were not producing these inequalities that he was criticizing, but yet when they were dismantled, he felt basically the urgency to, you know, come up to their defense. So how do you relate these, how do you relate this discrepancy, so to speak, that he, I don't think he ever sort of theorized between defending something that you basically previously criticized for being enmeshed in power. I mean, that's basically... That, and the reason why you're defending it is because the world that you're living in is getting worse. And you, you can see this on different different fronts. You know, you can see this in terms of, you know, people who <coughs> were, were critics of sort of liberal democracies, but now with the sort of like rise of authoritarian populism are sort of going, you know, retreating to the defense of liberal democracies. You can see it in you know, for example, with people who criticized multiculturalism and now with a sort of Again, with basically the rise in right-wing nationalist and racist movements, you have people who are defending multiculturalism again. And I basically do not end the book by sort of, you know, saying that there's a there's a resolution to these very difficult questions, but I, I do but I sort of like end by by saying that you know when we're sort of thinking through this question of of what is like what is what is a radical theory, uh, and what is a public engagement in a way? It is very it's it's sometimes very you know humbling to sort of go back and think about the the sort of like the costs that people pay for the positions that they they produce. Basically, I just say that you know when you're thinking in a precarious condition in a police state like the Syrian dictatorship during civil wars in Lebanon is very different from sort of thinking from a, from a very, very different site. So I sort of, you know, end by sort of extending to the reader a proposition, which is that perhaps one should not uh, reify radical theory, but rather one should uh, think about what are the different questions that intellectuals are trying to answer? What are the conditions they are working uh, in? And what are basically the interventions they are trying to achieve as opposed to sort of taking a, you know, taking a step back and say, and judging a theory to be radical or not radical without any any attunement really to the context of its production, circulation, reception, and as and the resonances it produces in the different publics, it it's basically uh, produced. It's it's sort of you know, it's circulating within. I hope I, I'm not sure if that makes sense to you, but I mean it's it's sort of a call towards 
a more a more sort of if you want ethnographic fine-tuned attunement to the conditions of intellectual labor and to thinking that to thinking the different practical effects of theories as opposed to uh, just judging theories as if they were sort of different you know ideas that are disembodied basically from and that have no social lives and thus judging judging them on their merits of how radical they are uh, without taking any of what I've mentioned into consideration. Yeah, it's definitely a difficult and big question. So thank you for tackling it as you did. Uh, so as a final uh, closer, uh, what are you working on now? I'm for the, as I was finishing this book, I sort of started to think about and do research and write on a second project, second book project, which is one that uh, sort of starts where this one ended. And it's basically a project that tries to reread uh, some of the seminal works of anti-colonial theorists, such as uh, Aimé Césaire or France Fanon, with uh, some of uh, basically the sort of seminal post-colonial uh, theorists such as Edward Said or the critics of a modernity such as Talal Assad in the wake of uh, the 210, the different waves of the sort of uh, Arab revolutions that started a decade ago. And the impetus for this work is to really try and think for today uh, a different sort of notions of critical theory that can account for, that can sort of render visible and account for uh, basically the practices of emancipation that these revolutionaries in Egypt, in Syria, in Yemen, in, in Libya, in Tunis, were basically uh, doing. And uh, and I think that's a theoretical question because there is, again, either culturalism that we talked about where basically people say, oh, you know, Arab Spring, Islamist winter, that was nice for a few moments and then the Islamists took over and there's nothing emancipatory happening. So that's one, this is one claim I would like to counter. And uh, the other claim I would like to counter is basically saying that, oh, if they do not conform to what the left thinks of as basically emancipatory practice, saying, you know, anti-imperialism, secularism, etc. Therefore, these people are not engaged in, in acts of emancipation and their, their lives and their works and their sacrifices are rendered invisible. This is particularly, you know, clear and troubling in how certain corners and quarters of the basically European and American left dealt with the, the Syrian revolution against the Assad dictatorship. So I am working on this project for two reasons. One is I think we do need to rework certain, so some of our concepts to capture what basically, what the, what is the political dimension that was at the heart of these uh, basically um, Movements and uh, the related question is, of course, a question which has more of a political resonance. Which is, if we do that, it's an attempt to think through the question of how can we be uh, in solidarity 
today because one of the main questions of course is that we are no longer in that in that moment of the 60s and the 70s where it's assumed that you know who you are in solidarity with and the main one of the main questions today is how can we be in solidarity across difference while being different and uh, these are the kind of two questions i'm trying to work through right now Wonderful. So, Fadi Bardawil, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen.